I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning as we consider the entrance of the king. History is replete with charismatic leaders, charismatic kings and emperors who deceived entire nations, who were known for murderous rampage of entire groups of people, invading, beginning unjust wars, really to increase their own wealth and power more than anything. Um, One example of this would be the Roman Emperor Caligula, who was the successor to Emperor Tiberius, who was the king when Jesus was in ministry. He was the the Roman emperor, uh, Tiberius. So his successor was Caligula, and he was known for many affairs with married women, even sleeping with his own sisters and bragging about these things. Um, he was living in luxury when people around him were starving and, and not concerned at all. Uh, but maybe the chief example of um, the kind of character he was and, and the level of, of evil that he exhibited was when he was enjoying dinner while he watched people being sawn in two, sawed in half. He could enjoy a meal while that took place. These are the characters that, that fill our history books. These are the kinds of people that we remember. The king of kings is radically different. Right? He, he did not seek wealth. He had wealth. And he gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up all of the prerog- prerogatives and privileges of heaven the authority and power to, to come in the form of an infant, taking on the role of a servant. He was poor, he was meek, he was peaceful. And for most of his ministry, well, all of his life leading up to his ministry, he lived in obscurity. And even most of his ministry, he was telling those who he healed to not share the news of what took place. And he was remaining, he was keeping his identity a secret for much of his ministry. But that takes a huge turn here as people will cry out to him as their Messiah. They recognize him for who he is, and yet they're seriously misinformed about his purpose at this time and what he's about to do. Instead of exercising cruel power, Jesus submitted to the Roman cross, and we'll consider that again this afternoon. But just want to give you a little bit of a background to Matthew. Jesus called, uh, Jesus called Matthew while he was in a tax booth. You can read about that in chapter 9, verse 9. He was considered a, a traitor being a tax collector against his own people. He collected taxes for Rome, and then in order to make his own salary, he had to extort people for more more than was due to Rome. That was how he, all of that, that was understandable, but if you wanted to be a a good tax collector, you extorted people even more. 
You you got as much as you could out of them. And so they were not well liked. And this was the man that Jesus called to follow him. And he immediately does so. Immediately follows him. Joins this select group of ordinary but very flawed men. To serve alongside Jesus during those three years. So he was a Jewish author. And his goal in the gospel is to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He talks frequently about the Old Testament prophet that Jesus was fulfilling throughout his life, starting with his birth all the way to his death. And most of the Old Testament quotes and allusions do come in the beginning and the end of the gospel. And so in order to really understand the significance of of what Matthew is saying, you do have to have a a decent grasp or understanding of the Old Testament. It expires you to refer back to the Old Testament often, understand what is being explained. There's frequent allusions that prove Jesus is the Messiah, that he was never acting arbitrarily, that the things he was doing were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He had redemptive historical purposes throughout his life. And so Matthew also highlights his kingly role, that that Christ was a king, that he has royal purposes. And we'll see that very clearly in this passage this morning. So if you're unfamiliar with the term, or just to to remind you, especially for for children, to recognize that Christ is not the last name of Jesus, it's a title. And And it means, it's in Greek, it's the Greek version for what you read in Hebrew as the Messiah. Uh, the, it's just the, the word for anointed one, Jesus, the anointed one. And that's what we're considering here in this text. Jesus' ministry that was filled with healing and teaching is now entering into its final week. And that is something that Jesus knows full well. He knows what's, what he's about to endure. And he follows through. All of the Old Testament points forward to this week. All of the New Testament points back or describes what took place this week. This is the most important time in redemptive history. And so we should consider it often and regularly, not just during this season, but every time we gather together as a church. We would be mindful of the gospel, what Christ has done. For us, those who declare Jesus as Messiah must know the implications of making that statement. Attending a a parade for two hours every year is not going to be adequate to consider him your king, to consider him your Lord. And you can certainly go beyond that. To, to consider just coming once a week. It's, it, is, is Christ having an impact as your king every day? <coughs> Are you drawn in repentance and faith to his word? And do you proclaim his praises with your family and your homes? If we, don't, we don't come just for the excitement of a parade once a year, thinking that maybe this year that I'll see something exciting. 
you know, maybe this will be a better one than last year. It's oftentimes how we treat our king. So those who declare Jesus as Messiah must be willing to follow him as their king. Well, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the opportunity to study it, to consider the implications of Jesus as our Messiah, Jesus as the anointed one, our king, who rules us and defends us. Help us to consider that now in this passage and to apply it throughout the week as we submit to our Lord and our sovereign. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts to respond in obedience, to be convicted of our sin, and to be comforted by the truth of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks before road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll look at this in two sections, verses 1 through 7. We'll consider the, the king's preparation, the king's preparation, and then we'll look at verses 8 through 11 at the king's reception. So let's begin with verses 1 through 7, the king's preparation. In verses 1 through 3, he gives instruction to two of his disciples. None of the gospels tell us who, which disciples went or did this task. But he gives two of them the task of fetching these, uh, a donkey and her colt. Um, the location where they are at this point is, is a couple of miles outside of the temple or outside of the city. They're um, ascending the Mount of Olives. Whether they're at the crest at this point or not, we're not sure. But as soon as they get up to the peak of the Mount of Olives, they'll be able to look down and see the temple off in the distance just a few miles away. Um, and so he sends two disciples for this donkey and colt that are in the vicinity right there at the top of Mount of Olives. We don't know precisely where this city was, where Bethphage was, um, or Bethany. They're, they're, they must be very near one another. Probably, uh, we know that, according to John, that Jesus stayed in Bethany for a few days. So he's, 
he's been there already leading up to Sunday, or leading up to um, his triumphal entry on, on Sunday. So he's probably gotten, arrived in Bethany somewhere sometime Friday. And, um, and then Bethphage would just be shortly off the neighboring um, community right there at the top of, of the Mount of Olives. Uh, that's, that's the best guess of the scholars today. So he informs them where they'll find this donkey and colt tied, and he gives them something to say. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So this could reflect some practice of requisitioning. Some scholars suggest this, that you know, kings, if a, if a king needed your animal, your donkey, or your horse, they could, they could request that. They could take, well, they wouldn't really need to request it. They would just take it. Right? They would declare that they're taking it for that purpose um, and, and would, would probably certainly send it back. Um, some rabbis, in fact, practice this. The other possibility, and what I think is more probable, is that Jesus had arranged with this family or this individual who was a follower of his while he had a few days there in Bethany. He found someone who had a donkey and who had a colt and and made sure that this uh, arrangement was established. And he said, when I send, I'll send some disciples to you who will will say to you these things, right? If they ask you why you're taking them, say the Lord needs you. It's almost like a, a password. And a recognition that, yes, this is, this is who Jesus said would come. Um, and, and so that's what I think uh, several scholars have, have, how they've understood this passage. Uh, but the, <clears throat> the primary point that, um, that Matthew is making here is in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He interrupts the instruction Jesus gives to these disciples and their obedience to that instruction, which we'll see in verses 6 and 7, he interrupts that with, with what he's really trying to point us to, which is that's fulfillment, uh, spoken by the prophet of Zechariah 9.9. That's quoted there. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So again, he's making the messianic identity explicit here as he's done often throughout the gospel and as he'll do continually during this Passion Week. Why a donkey? Why, why does he come on a donkey? Well, very clearly, the first thing we would say is Zechariah 9.9 says he will come on a donkey. And so he finds a donkey. But what did a donkey represent? Donkeys in the Old Testament are generally associated with wealth with royalty. Those who wrote on them, in fact, when we read Judges, it talked about the, the judges who, who had princes, who had sons who were princes who rode on donkeys. It was a, a, a show of their royalty, a, a show of their office, a sign of their wealth. And yet it, it wasn't just something that was reserved for the social elites. Right? It, it, they did take advantage of riding on donkeys, traveling in this way, but it wasn't as if it was luxurious travel, right? The, the text does say the foal of a beast of burden. 
meaning this is someone who, this is something that you would take along on a journey with a family that could carry your luggage or possibly a, a member of the family who, who has difficulty walking. That's not the case here. Obviously, Jesus, they've been walking for three years. It's not that he needs some rest. He's very clearly fulfilling this prophecy here by riding in on a donkey. <clears throat> so primarily, what is being emphasized is the fact that the donkey represented a time of peace. And that's what we saw in, in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Remember, he comes in on a donkey, he puts away the war horse, cuts off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's, it's the contrast of the peaceful donkey, the donkey who comes in peace, and the war horse. Right? When a king is riding on a horse, returning, they're returning from battle or they're, they're going out to battle. When they're riding on a donkey, they're coming in peace. Right? It's a time of peace. That is what is being emphasized as he rides this donkey. It's not as if he's sort of like coming into Jerusalem on a Yugo when he could have been rolling in a Mercedes. Right? It's, it's not like that. Like that's a symbol of his humility. No, his humility comes from his character. He himself was a humble, meek Savior and Lord. He was a, a gentle king. The donkey itself represents peace. So they obey. The disciples in verses 6 and 7 went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now here's another challenge because we start to envision, how does Jesus sit on these, this donkey and a colt? And are they the same size? Or if the, if, is the mother older? The other gospels talk about the colt not being weaned yet. So maybe it's very young. It hasn't been ridden yet. It's not been away from its mother and so now you've got this awkward kind of, in, you're visioning Jesus trying to sit on them. That's not what's happening here. They've placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus is sitting upon the cloaks, them represent, or referring to the cloaks that Jesus is sitting upon on the colt. We know the other Gospels uh, don't even reference the mother being with the colt, but we can see and understand why the mother would have been with, her, with the, the, the colt, because it had never been ridden. So possibly by way of keeping, ensuring that the colt would remain calm with all of the crowd and all of the commotion and Jesus on the colt's back, that uh, they would remain calm. So that is what's happening here. The, um, Jesus sits upon the colt and the presentments that have been placed upon the colt and placed upon the mother are representative of sort of just the honor, right? It's, it's kind of a makeshift saddle for them. And it would be an honor for them to place their cloaks upon them for the king to ride upon. We know as they enter into uh, the city, they'll be placing those cloaks upon the ground. Um, so Jesus is king. That's what Matthew is wanting to emphasize the highlight of the passage is Christ's fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. No previous prophet, priest, or king was able to accomplish what Jesus was about to accomplish. And so the donkey symbolized kingly authority and his peaceful mission. Jesus himself was meek, as described in Matthew 5, verse 5, 
we read, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, uh, 11.29, Matthew 11.29 speaks of uh, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um, Did I, I... Oh, I read the wrong verse, sorry. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. So he's meek and he's gentle. It's Jesus who is humble and low here. He's the one taking the role of a servant, and he's come to save us. So the, the pinnacle of Jesus' humility is reflected in his death, which we'll consider this afternoon. The triumphal entry. Why do we call it a triumph week? Right, he triumphs over death at the end of this week by way of crucifixion and burial and his resurrection the following week. So he has this triumphal entry, but it was only by way of setting up what was about to take place. Um, January 25th, 1995, Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia. And... Um, Someone came in and handed him, one of his administrators comes in and hands him a briefcase that is opened with a screen showing uh, the coordinates of a missile that had just been launched four minutes prior, and the light is on, on near the handle of the briefcase as he's watching this. Uh, this is the, the nuclear football and that he has, he has to decide whether he is going to respond to this attack upon their country. Now, the coordinates of the missile had been, had been launched from the Nor- Norwegian Sea, which they estimated was a good spot for American submarines to hide out. This was four years after the Cold War had ended, and yet there was still some remaining tensions, and they had made some mistakes in this administration in the past for, uh, that were embarrassing. An amateur 18-year-old pilot was able to fly all the way near the, um, near the home of the Kremlin. So it, you have this um, missile heading straight for Moscow, and Yeltsin has to decide within six minutes if he's going to respond. He had 4,700 nuclear warheads at his control, And you think, well, nothing happened. I, I don't recall us being in any, or nu- any nuclear war in 95. I think I would have recalled that. Well, it turns out that they had been tracking Norway had a weather missile that Norway had sent. It was a, a weather rocket Norway had sent to study the Aurora Borealis. And so Peter Pry calls this the war scare. His book is titled The War Scare. He wrote it in 1999. He calls this the single most dangerous moment of nuclear missile age. What could have happened had they not hesitated? Well, in a sense here, what's happening is Jesus is is absolutely aware of what he's doing. He's stirring up the people to give him praise as the Messiah and King right in the face of the Sanhedrin right in, in front of the religious leaders. Right? He's provoking them to do what he knows they're going to do. 
what he knows they've been waiting to do and trying to take every opportunity to put him to death. Jesus knew that entering Jerusalem was the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. It was nothing, there was nothing uncertain about the decision in front of him. He wasn't given a, a, a little time to reflect upon uh, whether he'd go through it. He was in complete control and he willingly did so. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. There could not have been a more thoughtfully calculated moment in history. Jesus took the necessary steps in order to make the ultimate sacrifice. There was nothing reckless about his decision. But it did set up an irreversible chain of reactions that led him to the cross. And he knew it was coming. This is the kind of king that we worship. Have you humbled yourself before him? Have you yielded your life to him? This is the kind of king we should be grateful we have the privilege of following. That we lay our lives down for him. Gratefully follow him who triumphed through sacrifice, right? He does die in our place. And this is what is setting, this triumphal entry is setting in motion those events. So that was not likely on the minds of the crowd that's gathering around him at this point. Um, As we turn to verses 8 through 11 and consider the king's reception, um, they lay their cloaks on the ground like they did when when Elisha anointed Jehu as king. They all lay their cloaks on the ground and they bow before him. So this is a, a paying homage to the king. Others, it says, cut palm branches, and this is a reflection of the victory that they, will, that they would enjoy under his reign. Revelation chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 1, or sorry, not, not verse 1, Revelation 7, verse 9, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is a, a symbol of victory, a symbol of honoring the king for the victory that he has brought. And so they're spreading the palm branches along the road before him. And there's a crowd before and after shouting out messianic praise, calling out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. During the Passover, Jerusalem would swell from uh, an average population of 30,000 to roughly 180,000 or even more. The numbers in Josephus are, are almost, um, I mean, he speaks of millions and, and millions of people, but it, uh, very few people find that number credible. Um, but regardless, they had, if, if there was an average of 30,000 in the city, the time it jumps up to 180,000 six times um, or more than the, the current, the average population. The city had no way of taking care of that many people. And so everyone would set up campsites around the, the city, outside of the city, right along the Mount of Olives and all the way down this two-mile slope. He's, 
He and his entourage are walking through. They're wading through these makeshift campsites, and you can see this entourage growing and building, picking up steam as they're asking questions. Who's that? Who are all these people? And why is he riding on a donkey? They're asking questions, and they're, they're, be, they're beginning to anticipate the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the psalm that they're quoting from is actually Psalm 118, which would have been a psalm on their minds and, and one that they sang every, during every annual festival as they uh, walked up the steps of the Temple Mount. They would have been singing the psalms of between 113 and 118. This, is, these, this language comes directly out of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Well, we read this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the psalm that also mentions in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so they're singing these psalms. And now they're seeing someone who's coming to fulfill this very psalm. And they're shouting out, Hosanna. The the word itself means save us. Save us. But it it had become just a a way of, of giving praise and acclamation to God saying Hosanna, more than likely they're not, they're not there crying out in desperation uh, for his mercy. They're simply calling him the Messiah. So some, we learn from John chapter 12, uh, 13, that some had come out of Jerusalem. Well, it says the next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So it would indicate mixture and out to meet him that they were in the city and they're going out. So that crowd before him was probably a mixture of people who had been gathering as he was entering into Jerusalem and also a group of people coming with palm branches in their hands out to meet him just like they would any visiting dignitary, right? To usher him into the city as a king, to pay honor to the king. So thousands as well had been journeying from Galilee. Um, during this Passover time, they would, have, uh, they would have been traveling along the same road that Jesus was on. And so they're all gathering now and anticipating what's about to take place. And so with this crowd getting amped up over the, the course of this, however long it would have taken, not very long, as they're getting amped up, it's all the more important that they would have recognized why Jesus was coming that he was coming in peace, that he wasn't coming as an insurrectionist. He wasn't coming to stir up a revolt against Rome to overthrow the throne of the emperor. No, he was coming to fulfill this Psalm 118. And as they anticipate it, its fulfillment, they really don't grasp the significance of this Psalm in its fullness at least. And then there's obviously some there who were intrigued by Jesus. We, we see in verses 10 and 11, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the question probably hints some level of skepticism about who, who this northerner is that's, that's gathered around with a bunch of Galileans. There was some skepticism about his purpose. Jesus was uh, recognized as a prophet by the crowd, which is probably mainly made up of Galileans who are, who are enthusiastic about the possibility of, 
of one of their own. Those who could, and yet this would only have served to stir up more antagonism against him. Those who considered Jesus a prophet, as we see in 21 verse 46, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So as they're declaring him to be a prophet here, we know that even throughout the week, many of them continue to consider him to be a prophet. And so it's restricting the actions of the Sanhedrin. But that'll come to a head as you have two different crowds. They recognize, one recognizes him as prophet and king, and yet in their mind, they want a political Messiah. That's what they have in mind. They have an immediate gratification in mind. The salvation they want is from Rome, is, a, is, is not from their sins. They want to be saved from the power of Rome. And then you have another crowd that wants to quiet and squelch the rebellion and revolt of, a, of an imposter. And so they rile up the crowd to cry out, crucify him. So Pharisees are irritated and they tell Jesus to rebuke his followers. We read that in Luke chapter 19. The chief priests and scribes become indignant by his actions in chapter 21, verse 15. So this entrance is not, uh, this crowd as he's entering is not the exact same crowd uh, that is there at his crucifixion. Um, we wouldn't want to say that, that it's just a fickle crowd that, that on one day is giving him praise and the next day they're cry- crying out for his crucifixion. Some may have been included in that, but these are two different people, people groups. And these are ones who, who want him to be the Messiah and ones who want to be skeptical, and yet neither of them get his purpose right. Neither of them are seeing him accurately. One group is favoring an uprising while the other one is seeking, or seeking to squelch life that they could have under his reign. Well, it's not to ask is what is our purpose? How are, how are we shallow in this way? 